Hello, Adulting Well listeners. This is Pepper, a.k.a. Joshua, a.k.a. Pepper, here to tell you about Anchor. So we used to host our podcast on another service, and we had this show for maybe three or four years at this point. And we got some metrics and things, but we didn't have a lot to do with them. And we recently switched over to Anchor. And what's amazing about it is it has all the metrics for the show. So you can see, you know, how many downloads you get and things like that. But it it also lets you engage with the audience uh, in ways that our old service couldn't. So, for instance, we can have polls. We can ask listeners to uh, leave us messages and questions and things like that. And we can uh, put them on the air super easily and answer those questions. Just uh, That's just one example, but there are just a lot of different ways that we can um, engage with you now that we're using Anchor. So uh, this is our first ad, and it's for this service that we're using to provide this podcast to you. And I think it's uh, actually a really, really good service. Um, and if you have a podcast, I recommend it. You can download the Anchor app or go to Anchor FM to get started. Uh, thanks for uh, pausing with me for a second. Now back to the episode. Hello and welcome back to the Adulting Well Podcast. I am your co-host, Joshua, and I am joined as always by Kevin, your co-host, and we are joined today by Michelle Cruz-Gonzalez, a writer, a musician, professor, mom, uh, all-around activist uh, for most of her life. So we're super excited to have you here, Michelle. Welcome, welcome. Hi, welcome. Yeah, lifetime punk rocker. I like to think of myself as a lifetime punk rocker since I've been in punk since I was about 12 or 13. And I'm 15. Is there a lifetime punk award ceremony? Because (laughs) I think that would be amazing. There should be. And a prize. (laughs) I agree. Yeah. And again, uh, you know, we... uh, we did a little pre-interview here, but, um, you know, the, the interesting thing I think for a lot of punks, um, especially ones that moved to the Bay Area is you come from a really small town, uh, Tuolumne, California. And it's always interesting to find out how and you know, why you got involved in punk at such a young age. Well, I, um, was born in LA and my mom wanted to have this, like, she had this like pastoral fantasy and no money. So she, moved us to a place that she could afford to raise her kids. And um, it was not a great safe place for me, even though it was safe in a lot of other ways. And um, so early on, I gravitated to punk and um, started listening. You know, the Clash and the Go-Go's were on the radio, and I started listening to them. And then, you know, once you start listening to kind of like starter punk bands, then you go, you, you dive deeper mm-hmm. and you learn more about other bands um, as much as you can in a small town. And that meant for us, like driving to Modesto, getting maximum rock and roll. And then before long, my um, girlfriends and I, you know, didn't take us long to, to realize that we had to start our own band. And um, I mentioned earlier that um, our band Bitch Fight has the distinction of being the very first band in Tuolumne, Tuolumne County and the city of Tuolumne as well. So that we started mm-hmm. Bitch Fight in about 1980. Five, 84, 85. Were the were the male punks supportive at the time? Um, no, they uh, there were only like a handful of punk rockers. I think at one point we were like fifteen or so, maybe twenty. Um, and the the guys who some of us had dated or were sort of hoping to date or something, um, who we hung out with. Um, started telling us that girls can't play music. And um, Nicole and I, the guitar player, we had already been playing in the elementary school band and then later marching band. So we were like, you know, back the fuck off. You can't tell us we can't play music. We already play music. Um, And they were like, well, we're going to start our own band. And we're like, fine, start a band. They never did. So I'll I'll talk no action. (laughs) Well, it seems to be a running theme on our show that, that every guest, when it comes down to it, they just said, well, fine, I'll make my own. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. Totally. Well, I, I think it's really interesting, too. Like, I, I spent a fair amount of time when I was growing up in the Sierra foothills, not in Tuolumne, but just, you know, kind of my parents loved going up, like, to Arnold and, you know, uh, Angel's Camp and mm-hmm. Murphy's and trying to, like, have vacations up there and 
Um, you know, it was a, such an interesting scene, but it was incredibly macho as well. So I, I can't imagine that it was easy uh, being, a, you know, a young punk woman, um, and, you know, especially, you know, in, in that area, it's not incredibly diverse in terms of race. I mean, it's, you know, it's a, it's a lot of like kind of it's white kids, essentially. It's, it's all white kids. Um, except for the Miwok reservation is actually in Tuolumne, but, um, uh, it, it's weird because we really felt, I don't know, it wasn't, it wasn't a safe place for me growing up at all. And, um, getting into punk, yeah, getting into punk really helped me find something that was my own. And Tuolumne has a distinction in terms of its history of a place that like, kicks people out um it it was formed during the gold rush and um the the miners who went there who kept going west and found gold um invited um people from sonora mexico and the county seat is named after sonora mexico and um, they invited a bunch of mexicans to help with the gold mines um people from you know um, northern mexico who had mines and experience doing that and the chinese as well and as soon as the townships were formed, they kicked those people out. So, like, that's the legacy of the town I grew up in. So growing up there, for me, wow. people didn't know that legacy, but it's just the thing that, that people in that county do. And um, they're not welcoming to people of color and anyone who's different. It, it's a Republican, overwhelming Republican area. The, nobody votes, hardly anyone votes there, but those who do um, are registered um, um, mostly, mostly Republican. So yeah, it wasn't a safe place, but being punk and getting into punk rock really gave me, um, somewhere to put my, my different feelings about the world and, um, sense of angst about, um, you know, the, the arms race and things that were going on in society at the time. That's so interesting. Michelle, you were saying earlier, and I wish we were recording because it really resonated with me that, becoming a musician and becoming a punk help people stop seeing you by your race and put you Mm -hmm. in a new category of like musician or punk. And that was kind of easier to navigate the world that way. Yeah. I, you know, when I was young growing up in Tuolumne, people always adults mostly would like kind of get in my face because adults think they can do that to little kids, Joe Biden. And, um, (laughs) (laughs) and they would just ask me like, what are you, what are you like all just trying to like, you know, pin me down, you know, and, um, about my race and put my identity in a box. And so when I became punk, um, people, you know, that was a dangerous time when you were in punk because people were like, kind of could be violent against you, but at the same time, people stopped harassing me about my race. So it, um, was a big relief that I found a way to, to present myself in the world that kind of made people a little afraid of me. Um, and like now mm-hmm. it's kind of sad to, to, to like put on a front that makes people afraid of you, but like, yeah, wow. I think it was really needed for me at the time. Um, for sure. I mean, I, I definitely experienced the kind of the fear mongering towards punks, um, mm-hmm. as well. I mean, we, you know, growing up in Santa Rosa, which, now, I mean, it's not a big deal when you see people Mm-mm. out you know, looking, looking however, but at the time, I mean, definitely a lot of like, you know, comments, you know, specifically like there was always like this, like underlying macho kind of like directed at, at you know, your sexual preferences, of course, you know, and that was like the big thing. People would yell like, you know, all kinds of crap, just driving by you know, throw things at us when we were walking down the street. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. You know, I, I think, but also there was also the reason they did it driving by a lot of times is because there was that fear factor. Like <laughs> this is like the unknown, you know, like what, why are these guys looking like this, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, but I, I definitely see that it is, you know, it's kind of interesting too, to me that you're, you know, that it diverted from your race, but it's also such a sad statement of, you know, even the state of affairs, you know, 30 years ago. Right. Oh yeah. Like, okay. So now, now because you've got super short hair and you've got clothes that don't fit into the mainstream of society, people are now asking you about your look, but for a different reason, you know? Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of like 
F you freaky commie bitch dyke, yeah. you know, comments. Um, but yeah, at the same time, I didn't, wasn't, I didn't have to, um, I mean, because my, I, my, my ethnic identity wasn't really that solid. I mean, for me growing up in a small town and being a Chicana growing up in a small town, like I didn't really know what it meant to be a Chicana except, you know, I, I mean, I was being it by being it, but I didn't really know what that meant in the world except for the shit that people put on me about it, you know, the, the label stuff and the, the, the stereotypes. Um, so, you know, to have punk, you know, people are going to call me names anyway. So yeah. I might as well just look a little scary. Yep. <laughs> you know, and I, I've, I've read the book, um, and you and I did a did an event together mm-hmm. a few months ago. Um, you what know, book I, are you talking about, Kevin? The Spit Boy Rule, and <laughs> so it's the Spit Boy Rule: tale, Tales of a Chicana and a Female Punk Band. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I mean, it's 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 a pretty quick read, which is great because mm-hmm. my attention span obviously is not fantastic, but um, but it's also like really interesting. The so kind of, and I don't want to get too heady, but going back to the this you know, being like, but almost like an extreme minority in Tuolumne. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I'm sure people mistook you for Native American because mm-hmm. they didn't know any better, you know, and that's just people don't, don't take a lot of time to really inform, <laughs> inform themselves, unfortunately. Right. I shouldn't make a joke about that. It's sad. Actually, it's a really sad statement on the, the state of society even today. But then you got into a, a scene that is was primarily white and male dominated um, but also did some things that were incredibly progressive, even for the punk scene by starting bands with only women in them, <laughs> you know? Um, and I, I, I mean, there's a lot of stories in the book about this, but you know, I, it's, it's always interesting to hear the person tell, tell the story live, you know, as to like what, you know, a little bit about like what that was like being, you know, pretty much the only Chicana, you know, around the scene for for the most part. Yeah, sorry that I have I still have a landline um, yeah. for some reason. <laughs> um, yeah, so in the Bay Area, you know, LA the LA scene is really a lot more diverse. Yeah, but the um, oh my goodness, but the uh, maybe we should wait for that to stop. That's fine. That's all um, right. It gives it flavor. <laughs> So in the Bay Area, the Bay Area punk scene is um, a lot less diverse than like, yeah. the L.A. scene, which is where I could have been into punk, but didn't wind up doing that because my mom moved us to Tuolumne. But um, the Bay Area punk scene in the 90s was predominantly male, predominantly white. And, you know, we have a lot of um, wealth in the Bay Area and of a lot of wealthy suburbs. So a lot of the punk kids at the Gilman scene did come from some money. I mean, I'm not saying like all of them were rich or anything, but, um, you know, when I moved here um you know in, in bitch fight nicole lopez the guitar player is also a chicana and um and then Susie is this was the singer and the three of us grew up very poor all on welfare and so when we moved down here it was kind of a culture shock for us for all three of us even um class and 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 ethnicity wise um but you know there are there were people of color in the scene but the weird thing about it you know a few here and there right but the weird thing about it is people didn't talk about race in the 90s. Everyone was trying to be, it was like the thing, you know, the best way, the best thing that people thought they could do was just say, I'm colorblind. I don't see race. Right, right. And that was like the old school version of diversity, I guess, right? I don't, I mean, of, of like, you know, uh, you know, of not being racist. The, the yeah. way we used to not be racist was, you know, quote unquote racist was to be colorblind instead, which is pretty racist in a lot of ways, but, um, mainly because it just denies people of color an identity that, 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 that people see anyway, you know, people aren't colorblind. That's crazy. Yeah, that's um, totally. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, you know, put it bluntly, it's bullshit. I mean, <laughs> I don't know how to put it. And I don't, I don't have any problem saying that. I think I would have been a, a little afraid to say it in the nineties in the Bay area, but, uh, you know, who mm-hmm. knows? I, I know that, you know, one of the the musicians that I played with, you know, mostly on, but on and off for 
you know, most of the nineties um, wrote for maximum rock and roll as well. Brian zero didn't mm-hmm. buy that shit. And he mm-hmm. really had a huge problem with identity politics that included people saying things like I'm colorblind, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and it, because it, it really, it, it kind of, it did, it, it diminished the idea that there was cultures that, you know, that were other, other than your own. Yeah. And it made the punk identity, the, the, I mean, it, it made the punk identity so important, you know, and um, I write about, you know, the punk point system. And that was a joke that people used to say, oh, you're going to lose your punk points. <laughs> but it was this, it was weird. It was like a joke, but it was also like within the joke, there was like some policing of your punkness. And, um, and one of the ways that it felt like you can lose your punk points is if you didn't prioritize being a punk rocker um, and that having multiple identities wasn't a way that you prioritize being a punk rocker. And so those of us who were people of color in the scene at the time, we didn't like spend a lot of time talking about our identities. More and more, I couldn't help it though. More and more, I did start talking about my, my family and my background um, and my ethnicity and being a Chicana and being a Chicana who is not a fluent Spanish speaker, um, being a Chicana who was essentially um, removed from her Mexican family in L.A. Because when my mom left originally, she left because she was fleeing an abusive husband, my father. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, none of these were choices that I, I would have made on my own. So um, all of that was very a very painful past. And I was just like, look, why do I have to be quiet about this? You know, I can uh-huh. I should be able to, to say this stuff and people, no one really knows me and who I am and where I've come from if I can't talk about this stuff. And so eventually little by little, I did start talking about it. And, um, you know, one of the, the, the ways in which, um, things became strained in the band was that I didn't know how to talk about these things. Um, in a way that was diplomatic and um, all people of color, when they felt like their identity has been suppressed in some ways, go through an angry phase. And my angry phase was was not, was not um, that healthy for band dynamics. It was natural. It was important. It was necessary. Um, Sometimes the way the band reacted wasn't, was also wasn't, um, wasn't productive and, or or kind as Mm -hmm. it could have been. But um, you, you, all are familiar with the importance of band dynamics and how important it is to preserve them and, and, um, their relationship to them. They are relationships. Exactly. So it had a big impact on the band for sure. Well, yeah. And I mean, in the book, you kind of go through this like transition that you were just talking about where you kind of become more self-aware. Um, Mm -hmm. and then it becomes more of an issue as you're realizing that it's something important to you. It's, it is pretty amazing how difficult it is when you've never been taught how to talk about something Mm -hmm. to actually talk about it, Mm -hmm. you know, and every, I think everybody has this battle to some degree. It's, it's different for for everyone. I I know for me, it can be around emotions, especially having a son, like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, you know, you kind of like, you, you have to learn, in some ways how to, how to walk and then run. And then, you know, you become sort of an expert and it's, 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 uh, but I, I, it was really touching to me to sort of read through that in the book because it, it felt to me like, and you know, I'm not sure what the intention was and in how you wrote, I just know what I, what I took out of it. It was almost like you had like this slow awakening to the importance of it. And we're trying to figure out for a long time how to put it. But there was no like there was no like guide of how to like bring this up in the band setting, you know, yeah. and and so you fumbled through it. The good news was it seems like in the end you had a, a group of people that were also somewhat struggling with how to sort of react to it, but were supportive. Yeah. You know, and I, I think, you know, not to get too generalized, but that's one of the big differences that I find in my relationships with men versus women is like being able to be vulnerable and and say things um, you know you know, like for example, to my wife that I wouldn't necessarily say to my, to my, to my brother, you know, my dad. And it's, but it's a, it is definitely a process. Um, so you moved to the Bay area, you lived in San Francisco first. Is that right? Yes, I did. Mm -hmm. And then lower hate. (laughs) Fun story from that, (laughs) from that time at the lit crawl event. Um, and what a time to live in SF. I mean, it was was really fun cheap and fun 
a very different time than today for sure i mean if you want to share any any fun stories from that feel free i you know i i found the one that you read at the event to be amazingly not only fun but funny and uh yeah dropping acid after i've only lived there for like a week and like totally getting lost and like realize thinking literally thinking like maybe we'll be lost forever because those are the kind of thoughts you have when you're doing that drug which by the way i do want to say i only ever did that twice i was like i'm not doing that again it was i was way in over my head moving to the city and then doing something like that um i really realized how in over my head and dangerous um it's that funny how exciting that would have sounded to me when I was young. And it just sounds like a nightmare it now. Like, like the stupidest thing now. It really does. But the thing that I think that I would like to say about living in San Francisco is that I'm just really glad that I got a chance to do it. There's no way that I could afford to live in San Francisco now. And no. um, it, I lived in a, in a couple of really beautiful apartments and um, I lived in Upper Haight, and I had this balcony patio thing that's on, on the third floor that looked out over the tops of all these um, rooftops of houses. And you can see all these trees and into all these, the, the, the tops of all the, uh, the Victorian houses. It was just really just oh, beautiful. And, um, I, you know, I grew up in a really small, shitty house that is always in a state of falling apart and um the kitchen was always you know mildewy and pieces of the cabinet never worked right and the doors never shut and I moved to um these apartments where everything worked and um there was all this beauty around me and and, um I'm just really glad I got to do that yeah it's touching (laughs) no it was a really fun time to be around in San Francisco I mean it just was such a different place you know, and I, it's, it's hard because sometimes I see glimmers of that, you know, now, mm-hmm. especially doing what I do for a living with, with our employees being so diverse. And it's just like, I, you know, I, I, you know, I lived in San Francisco for 22 years and grew up just North and it, it like, it's just such a, it, ha- it holds so many beautiful memories like that for mm-hmm. me too. I mean, you know, we always had like at least one bandmate's sibling that lived here. If we, you know, if we needed to, we'd come down and stay and, you know, house shows, like things that don't happen as often anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe they do, and I'm just too old to know about it. But, you know, it was yeah. such a vibrant artistic community too, between music and art and, you know, you know, people writing. Yeah, it really was quite amazing. Kind of like people learning their chops. We've had other people on the show, like Martin Sprouse, um, you know, and like him talking about how he learned to do graphic arts, basically doing stuff for Maximum Rock and Roll. You know, yeah, I lived and, across the street from Michael Franti, for example. You know, yeah, he lived in a building across the street from me, and you sometimes you could hear them playing music and um, coming from across, sailing from across the street. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. Another <laughs> amazing band. Mm-hmm. Um, so I moving forward a little bit in the timeline the and i don't know how much you remember from this time but we actually i played in a band in santa rosa called engage and we played a benefit with spitboy and jawbreaker and heroin at the phoenix theater for food not bombs in 1991 someone recently sent me that flyer i'll I'll forward it to you um and adam fowler's sister who's a a um visual and performance artist mm-hmm. actually got sick from, from the food that night, the food, not bombs food, ironically. Um, but you, you all used to do some really cool stuff. And this is like, this totally sticks out in, in my memory because of, you know, one, I loved seeing Spitboy live and mm-hmm. I always ran into Adrian in the most random places. I think That's I mentioned funny. this this to you when we, when we were talking before yeah. the, the crawl event, but um, she would just like, we were on tour engage was on tour and we were in Minneapolis and all of a sudden Adrian just like comes out of nowhere in the state liquor store, you know, and she's <laughs> like, Oh, you're drinking now, Kevin, you know, kind of thing. Like, but, um, but we played that show and it's, a, it's memorable for me for, for actually one reason. I don't remember anything else, but that you all had ground round jump up and play a couple of songs on your equipment. And, um, <laughs> um, I, like, it just was a, such a like a moment in time for me because you know bands 
like I felt like the Bay Area had something special. Like the bands were always like always seemed to me by like this like competition, jealousy, mm-hmm. you know. And here here you are, you're you're basically playing right before Jawbreaker. There's a really good crowd there, and you give the end of your set to a local band. You That's know, and that, so funny. I don't even really I don't remember that. That's so funny. Yeah. I mean, it's totally the kind of thing that we would have done. Yeah. Because we 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 always wanted people who didn't have as much of a chance to play music or to experience what we were experiencing or just to feel empowered, to feel empowered. Um, and we also just sort of hated playing longer than 30 minutes. We were just like, we just wanted to get in and get out. So if we ever had yeah. more time to play, we'd always, you know, just, you know, do it in a guest thing or I don't know, talk or read a poem. And, um, but yeah, we, it's it's funny that that I don't remember that, but I know that Spitboy. We always just we had a generous spirit. Everybody in the band did, and we just loved the scene and our friends so much. And um, we would have, of course, been willing to do something like that. And I know that we we did whenever we had the chance. Maybe, maybe sometimes, maybe not enough, but I do remember that that was a part of who we were for sure. Well, that and that was one of the things I kind of set that up more to talk about the misconceptions at that time, and maybe even now. I don't know what the sort of the the reputation of the band is now because it's been a, obviously a really long time, and you've all moved on to other things in your lives. Uh, uh, the reputation is that they were fucking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, that I agree with you. But, like, I, it, you talk about this in the book, like people would approach you sort of, you know, a little with trepidation, like, are they going to be like mean or, and it, like, I always had when, cause I, I mean, that's basically living in Santa Rosa. Like we always tried to get Bay area bands to come up. And whenever I would call spit boy, it was always like where and when kind of thing. Like there was, ne- it was never like a, well, what bands are we playing with and where are we going to play on the bill? And, you know, and it was like, it's just funny that people be- and I think maybe it was because you were also women and playing such aggressive music, right. Mm-hmm. That there was like this sort of like, strange like idea oh, it was so intimidating i mean my first show was Spit boy <laughs> i was 15 it was 92 it was with nuisance and i can't even explain like i want to say it's amazing but it was so outside my wheelhouse that i i almost couldn't process it you know like i was it would be years before i really you know understood uh what spit boy meant i was just this explosion of a, this aggressive women just screaming and it was just <laughs> fucking like nothing i'd ever seen and i was hooked it was amazing <laughs> eventually that's really funny yeah i mean people really thought we were scary um and everyone in our band like i was the only one in the band who didn't really walk around smiling all the time because i'm not i'm not that way but uh, maybe more so now, but because I'm a teacher. But um, Adrian and Karen, in particular, were always smiling, and they had like they had beautiful teeth because you know they had grew up in families that had good dental dental care. And um, that's such and, a punk thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I can't help it. No, um, Karen, no joke about Karen. I mean, that's like. Yeah, you know, there's a there's a freaking picture of her teeth on a cringer cover for God's yeah, sake. Exactly. <laughs> and so we were we even though like we had we were really friendly, but people always commented on that. They always thought, "Oh, we were so scared to meet you." And it's just cuz the music, yeah, the music is aggressive and like hardcore band music is aggressive, but I also have to remember though, when I first got into punk, I thought punks were scary all punk rockers. And even though I was getting into it, I was still afraid. And so I remember that that's just, I have to also remember that that's just sort of like something that comes along with punk. But I think it was definitely magnified by the fact that people did not expect women to play the music that we were playing and to sound the way we did and to be as in your face about it as we were. And, you know, oh, well, that's I mean, all I have to say about that is, oh, well, too bad. This is what we were doing. That's what we wanted to do. And um, we had a message. We had something to say. And um, we were going to say it really loudly. And if you didn't want to hear it, then you should just walk out of the room. Um, and maybe down, yeah. down the block. Maybe down the block because you're going to hear it if you're right outside the room. 
Yeah. Well, and I, I, the other thing is, is I think this has probably had some influence on it, not when you first started, but as the band developed a little bit, also um, in Olympia and DC developed the Riot Girl scene, which you weren't a part of. And there's a part in the book where you talk about this specifically, which I find incredibly interesting. But there's, there was, I think there was a misconception and, and I could, you know, I'm happy to be wrong about this. I think there was a misconception in the punk scene from a lot of people that didn't live around the Bay area, especially, and kind of saw you play a lot that all women bands were related to this, the riot girl movement in some way. And, you know, I, I think it's a, you know, it's a kind of a, it's, it's not true. Number one, but it was kind of, it's kind of like a weird people just assumed. And that was a, a lot of the, I felt a lot of that scene was difficult to approach at times if you weren't Mm -hmm. part of it. Um, mm-hmm. but you, you made a statement, I believe on stage at one point. Yes, about that. <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, in Olympia we were playing, um, and members of bikini kill were there in the audience and, um, a young man came up and asked if the boys had to stand in the back because that's what they had to do when bikini kill played. And we didn't know that they were doing that. We didn't know about boys to the back, which is actually a pretty brilliant thing, but it's not what, it's not what Spitboy wanted to do. It wasn't our approach. Um, for me, we had discussed it in, in the, in the van many times, um, when we were driving around and playing shows and stuff or on tour. And I just felt like, uh, you know, I know that the power dynamic is off, but, um, and we live in a patriarchy, but I just don't want to ask any group of people to go to the back. That just feels rude and wrong. And I just, I just didn't, you know, just, I don't know, don't use the master's tools to, you know, dismantle the master's house i guess was was sort of the way i thought about it not as intellectually because i didn't really have that the language or the you know to think about it like that or know the audrey lord quote incidentally and um so adrian said no you don't need to stand in the back but you know like don't stand in front of somebody who's shorter than you because that's just also rude and um but we were really shocked that that having found out that that that's was an expectation and um we wanted men to hear our message because that was important for us you know we weren't our audience wasn't just women i mean we our audience was men and we wanted men to to take in what we were saying and take it into consideration um so i i just said into the mic not very diplomatically at all we're not a right girl band and um <laughs> i said we we have to stand back because we're not a riot girl band and the room just went totally dead silent like i had just like (laughs) pissed on the church of riot girl and um and right when i said it i started to like tremble like oh man i really screwed this up um then adrian was like yeah just don't you know just don't stand in front of someone who's um shorter than you and um, kind of tried to recover some kind of decorum and um and then we just played that's what we did we just played this music and um everyone you know people you could see the looks on a lot of the women's faces that were really angry but um we had been interviewed many times on this tour and before the tour and people asking us are you a riot girl band are you a riot girl band and we're just like geez this whole riot girl thing just will not leave us alone and the thing that upset us about it was that people just made an assumption just because you're a woman you're automatically a riot girl and in the bay area in the 90s feminists didn't want to be called girls and that's very different from the riot girl scene and we just that was our our thing was we didn't want to be called girls that just felt like a regression to us so we rejected um the riot girl label for for those reasons um and um didn't want to be associated with their scene we 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 had said to people many times in interviews and stuff that we thought that everything, just about everything that they were for were things that we stood for. Um, but we didn't want to, we didn't feel comfortable using sex and sexuality as performance that felt really scary to us. And so, um, um, that was another reason why we rejected riot girl and not all riot girl bands did that, but that was a big part of the bigger riot girl bands for sure. As we perceived it at the time. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I, we, um, yeah, I had some strange, you know, just different sort of interactions around that time touring. Um, you know, just a lot of, you know, a lot of rules. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but you know, you know, each, each scene in each town is its own kind of autonomous, 
thing, right? I mean, and that's that's part of what I think now as a being older, I can look back and say, oh, now I can appreciate it a lot more. At the time, it was always confusing, especially because there was no internet. You'd show up at a show and not really know what the kind of the rules of engagement were for that specific that specific town or scene. You know, that's you kind of had point, yeah. It's kind of it's kind of like you just show up and everyone would be like, oh, you don't no, you don't like we played in somebody's. Um, you know, always, but we played in a lot of basements, obviously, back then. Um, and we, you know, there was, there was a few where they're like, you can't wear shoes in the upper part of the house, you know? And I'm just like, oh, okay. I remember I was in Virginia at a show and uh, I started moving and the guy next to me was like, whoa, no dancing, bud. You know, like there was no dancing <laughs> for the hardcore <laughs> wow. DC crowd out there. Yeah, yeah and you know how much, so, you know, it's funny, punks hate rules, but then they're like really into like making them. Yeah, Tunks love totally. rules. Are you kidding? They love rules. It's like the whole thing now. You see all these memes going around. Like we've got anarchists, uh, you know, listening to the government. You know, right. and, it's such a paradox. All these paradoxes. Yep. Um, so, talking about rules, what what specifically is the Spit Boy rule? Oh, it's a good one. The Spit Boy rule is no boyfriends on tour, um, and. I know, like, I, I don't know if I was the first one to say it, but I know I had a lot to do with that rule. You know, it's, it, to me, it goes hand in hand with not wanting to be in a band with um, men. Um, but we just decided that we didn't want to bring our boyfriends on tour with us because, um, you know, power dynamic or band dynamics are, are hard enough and tricky enough as it is. And also, like, being on tour with your band is a really special bonding time. When you add other, the more people you add or, and the more complex relationships you add, the more, the, the more it can, it can mess up that dynamic. And, um, you know, if you're like trying to play music and just be, you know, communing in music with your bandmates and they're just more focused on their, their, their partner. Um, I don't know. That just messes up, messes up the, the, the dynamic and the feeling and um also ill like i don't know like i just don't think that you should bring your significant other on tour it just seems like a bad yeah that's crazy because then you have to worry about them all the time and stuff like like it's hard yeah that's a good rule it is a good rule rule. so um that's my ikea rule And I'm I'm not exaggerating. I probably talked to you for hours about the you know the history of your experience in punk. I'd also like to you know because we we try to keep these to an hour. It's sometimes yeah. next to impossible. But um, you know, here a little fast forward because you're you're um, you've done quite a lot since you know, Springboard broke up to today, um, and you know between you know, your personal life and whatever you're comfortable talking about there being a, being a, you know, an instructor, college mm-hmm. level professor is, I mean, I, I know a ton of people from the punk scene now that are, that are teachers, which is amazing. Not surprising, but amazing. No, I'm always impressed. Um, <laughs> and um, so I'd love to hear a little bit about like, you know, the, some of the things that you've been, you've been doing and, you know, I know you're working on more writing. Um, so, you know, if, if you don't mind, maybe we can talk a little bit about the friendships too, that you've kind of held on to Cause I know you and Martine are still very close and um, there's a lot of people from the, from the punk scene that you're, that you're, you know, that you're still really close with. Yeah. So let's see. Well, uh, yeah, I'm really close with Martine, and I'm still in, you know, touch with all the members of Spitboy. Um, we don't like hang out or not super close. I'm, I think the person I'm, I'm closest to um, now, mainly because she lives nearby, is Paula. Um, but um, since when Spitboy broke up, we were an instant girl, Karen and Dominique and I. Dominique was our second bass player. And um, that band was only going to be together for a year because um, Dominique was going to graduate school at Yale. And um, so we did a record and a tour and then disbanded. And um, I went back to school and studied. I got an English degree. You guys, shut up. You're making too much noise. <laughs> the kitchen. Um, <laughs> the boys in the kitchen are making noise. Um, Always rocking in the kitchen. Yeah. So at least they're cooking for themselves. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so I went back to school and um, got a, a bachelor's degree in English and creative writing and then went straight away and, and got a graduate degree because I, I went back to school when I was 28. You know, I was in school when I was in Spitboy off and on taking usually one community college class a semester because that's all I could afford. I had to put myself through school. And um, right after graduate school, I started teaching community college English. My first day back in the classroom, I felt like this is totally what I was meant to do my whole life. I, I can't believe I, I finally feel like, yes, this is my jam. Um, oh, wow, cool. Yeah, I really had that feeling the very first day, and I was totally green. I you know, didn't, wasn't a great, amazing teacher on that first day at all, but I did have the feeling that, um, that was the thing that I, I, my whole life had been preparing me for, including being in Spitboy. Um, and, you know, being in Spitboy, you know, I read a lot of like feminist books, a lot of novels, and I read a lot of news and stayed up to date on politics so I could write, you know, because I was interested, but also all of this information that I took in was stuff that I would use in my songs. And so I, I really learned a lot of synthesis skills being in Spitboy, how to synthesize different pieces of information. And um, those are all things that you have to teach when you teach um, writing and literature. Um, and, and then just the kind of like the performative element of teaching um, is something that came very easily to me. I mean, I mean, I, I also like to be the center of attention <laughs> Or if not the center of attention, at least um, to be able to kind of direct things. I'm good at facilitation. Um, and a lot of those skills are things that I learned um, in Spitboy, learning how to read a room and learning how to navigate relationships and dynamics and understanding that everything in our lives is about relationships, everything we do. Um, we can't learn well. We can't play music well. We can't... Um, navigate complex ideas with other people the way we need to in life without the relationship first and being in a band really taught me all of those things um in a very up close and um, very uh active i it was a very apt active application of that every single day being in spitpoint and going on tour and putting out records um so everything that i did before spitpoint prepared me for being a professor. And then I think the other thing that I really learned a lot about or a thing that, that came together for me with teaching and, and being in, in punk is that I teach in community college level. So, you know, college age students, young people who are still not quite adults, but um, still young, still considered young, but not adults. And, um, you know, it's the, the same audience that a lot of punk music is geared toward or that a lot, a lot of punk music is made by people those age. And so I get to be around young people all the time in, in my job. And, and um, I love that. I mean, I love that so much, um, being around young people. And um, punk has not only, like, kept me young in a way, but it also has given me an appreciation for the agency of young people and the intelligence of young people. So, yeah, I oh, think, uh, I, you know, one of the things that actually we have mentioned Gabe Moline earlier through talking about uh, ground round, he actually said during his interview that he learned everything he needed to know about the rest of his life from punk rock, mm, me too. How, how to do events, how to write <laughs> totally. by doing zines and, you know, he's a journalist now. Right. So, so like the, and I I feel a lot the same way. Like I can project manage things that I could have never done had I not put on shows for all those years, you know, and even some of this, the doing the podcast and like getting guests on here, you know, kind of having to like pitch them is almost like having to book shows. Right. Yeah. So, and I did all the tour, even like setting it up and recording and all that was, yeah learning from doing like four track tapes back in the day. Yeah, you know? totally. And, you at least felt and, a little comfortable. Like you kind of knew what you were doing. <laughs> yeah. Unless we're having sound issues. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't we new. We're doing. By the way, that wasn't No, that new wasn't new at all. I was like, oh my, it's just like a punk show. We can't quite get the sound to work. You know, it's not, not surprising at all. But the, the, the thing, the thing that's the most, I think, and this is the, 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 
the big thing and the most kind of sentimental for me. And, you know, it's not really about nostalgia, but I am, I'm a pretty sentimental guy. I, I think that the friendships that I made through music, those are the ones that have lasted the longest. Like mm-hmm. I mentioned Brian earlier, he's, he lives in, in Prague now, but we, we talk, you know, as much as we can, we, we FaceTime mm-hmm. each other. And so those friendships that I've had for 30 plus years or 30 years are like the ones that I cherish the most still, you know, mm-hmm. or the people that I've met, you know, I'm in a band again with Chuck Goshert, you know, what I mean, oh, like, I love Chuck. These, these are all people that I've known forever. You know, Chuck played in Siren at the end, like our last lineup when I was in the band. So, you know, and we'd always like had this like idea, oh, we'll get together and play again. And, you know, it just so happens that he's a teacher as well. He's a professor in, in of English and, um, and outside of Salt Lake City. And we yeah. do it long distance because I'd rather play with him. Okay and be in a band with him because we know each other so well, then try to figure it out. You know, um, you know, who just those are the, by those... my house. Oh, sorry. Who? On her bike today and texted me so I could come out and stand six feet away from her and say, hi, it's Kamala parks. <laughs> oh my God. That's amazing. And she's she been so in, amazing. And she's still really active in the scene and she just moved totally. nearby where I am. And she, um, so she lives like, you know, several blocks straight down this one street near my house. Um, and she rode her, she was riding her bike for exercise and she texted me to see if I was around. Of course I was. She said, do you want to come out and stand six feet away from me and say hi? So um, we had a nice little chat this morning. Um, and, and I'm still really close with Ivy, who's also in Kamal and the Carnivores um, nice. as well. Yeah. All the Carnivores uh, did, are really close. Yeah. Didn't, um, I feel like Kamala got sick though at the at that lookouting thing. Was she unable yeah, to play in one of the bands? She um she played I think she played um the Carnivores show, but she was too sick oh. to play the Cringer, the the um the Cringer tribute band right. show, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. That's it. That's it. So that was, those were fun shows. So um is there anything else you'd like to leave us with? We're, we're, we're coming up on about the, we try to shoot, like I said, for 45 minutes or so. Okay. Um, so we're coming up, we're a little bit over that, but is there, is there anything else you wanted to leave us with? I just want to say thank you too. This was amazing. Absolutely. Like, this is fantastic. Uh, like, I'm so glad that we got to talk to you. No, you guys have been great. I don't really have anything else. Thank you so okay. much for mentioning all that stuff about my book and getting me yeah. to talk about it some more. Thank you. I appreciate well, it. Well, yeah. And I'm excited for your, whatever you have next in terms oh, of yeah. writing, as soon as it comes out, let me know. And we'll, well, my, I'm writing um, columns for razor cake occasionally, like about every six yep. months. And, um, I wrote about riot girl. I wrote about going to see bikini kill and a meltdown that I had in a recent issue. Okay. Um, and I also, I wrote a novel that I'm trying to get published. Um, excellent. About Mexicans, it's like a dystopian novel and okay. a dystopian satire. So um, hopefully that'll come out, you know, in the next couple of years at least. You know, it takes a while to get books out. Um, and then you know, I do a lot of other writing, and I'm, I'm writing a screenplay about growing up punk in Tuolumne. Awesome, awesome! <laughs> Can't wait to see that. <laughs> I think I think every punk that grew up in a small town is gonna is gonna totally like dial in on that one. That's amazing. Yeah, I think it's it's. I'm writing that the it's a. It's a TV show for by and for punk rockers. You don't have to have grown up in a small town to appreciate it. That will really go yeah. be, be a big element of it. But even just I'm, there are a lot of like I'm hoping to have a lot of punk music in it and references because it just comes out. It's just what comes naturally to me. Mm-hmm. That's excellent. Well, we we I can speak for myself. I'm not going to speak for Joshua, but I definitely look forward to it. Um, it's just totally amazing, Michelle. Thank I you don't want so anything much. to do with this. <laughs> <laughs> Josh is going to get all punk. It's going to say, fuck that. Yeah, he's going to resist. <laughs> um, we have a little bit of housekeeping just really quick for everybody. Our entire season uh, is going to be hope, you know, likely very lengthy given our circumstances right now. Um, is going we're gonna whatever we collect through our Patreon account is gonna go to Hospitality House in San Francisco. Um and for those that don't know what Hospitality House is, I highly recommend you go to hospitalityhouse.org and check out the amazing work they do. Their mission is to build community strength by advocating for policies and rendering services which foster self-sufficiency and cultural enrichment. Hospitality House encourages self-help, mutual respect, and increased self-esteem. The goal of these efforts is to make 
the heart of San Francisco a better place for us all. They're located in the TL and they, they service individuals that are that are basically underserved in San Francisco, uh, people with mental health issues, uh, substance abuse issues, and they give them housing and teach them things like art and uh, peer counseling. So um, very small nonprofit that desperately during these times needs our help. And so we're going to try to help them as much as we can. Um, well, I was going to buy an Xbox. Yeah. Donate. Yeah. Donate, yeah, everybody. Donate, donate, donate. And then um, your classes really quick, Michelle. We let you do the, the you know, kind of the, the what's what's next. But you, you teach at, at, at what school? I teach at Las Positas College in um, Livermore. Um, it's uh, part of the Chabot, the Las Positas and Chabot College District. It's a two-district college. And um, I teach in the Puente program, which is a program that targets um, Latino students or Latinx students. And, um, but anyone is welcome to join the class. And I also teach creative writing there as well. And um, I run a, I coordinate a bunch of programs, mostly student services like tutoring and um, workshops. And so I'm, I'm, I'm really busy and I love teaching the community college and um Community college is the punk rock of higher ed. So if you want to take a class and learn something new, come and take a class. And just find I, your local community college and take a class. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. And thanks for listening, everyone.